Hello everybody, welcome to Meet the Farmers. This is episode 70 and I'm your host Ben Eagle. We've got a full programme today so let's dive straight in and take a look at what's coming up on the show today. I'll be joined by Matt Swain from the Nuffield Farming Business Group who is also a previous guest on the show to look at some new stories from the last week. I'll also be speaking to Exmoor farmer Robin Milton, who is also the chair of the Exmoor National Park Authority and a past chair of the NFU's Uplands Forum. There'll also be the next instalment of Guess the Crop, where we'll be upping the difficulty slightly. First though, let's take a look at the past week's news stories. Right, it's that time of the show when we look back on the news stories from the past week. And I'm not doing it by myself this week. <laughs> I'm, I'm really pleased to be joined by Matt Swain, um, who's a farm business consultant and also leads the Nuffield Farming Business Groups. Matt, thanks for coming on the show. It's really good to have you here. My pleasure, Ben. How are you doing? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Good, actually, surprisingly well. Unlike uh, everybody involved in, um, in farming, we, we need to count our blessings, don't we? We've got space. Absolutely. And uh, some of the uh, some of the people I know very well have not. So uh, yeah, very well, thank you. Good, good stuff. Let's uh, let's dive straight in. Uh, I know I, I know you want to talk about dairy first of all. Well, I, I, I was I was intrigued that Al Jazeera, you know the uh, you know that, that well-read farming daily press has picked up the uh, the fact that we put a million liters of milk. Um, in the slurry tank uh, this week, and of course it is. Uh, it's going to be perceived worldwide as a, a dreadful, um, uh, a dreadful waste. But one of the little quotes I came across last week about the service sector that we've lost is that all the uh, the coffees and teas have a hundred mils of milk in those, and at home we only put ten mils of milk. So you can just see why by that factor of ten, that loss of the service sector has been so devastating. But the uh, the other thing that I was just picking up on yesterday on farming today was um, Professor Lang was on there. He of he of Food Miles and the Guardian um, media lovey. And um, he was obviously putting the point across that, um, you know, now is the time, well, apart from bashing the government, you know, <laughs> uh, as he likes to do, he's making the point that, um, that now is the time for finest homespun, that we should all be shortening the food chains and uh, having a, a decentralized um, production system and, and, um, and so on. And um, I kind of agree with him in that now is a good time to try and get the UK, UK's 1% of GDP up. Yeah. Got no problem with that. That's, that's good. And as we head into a potential WTO trading situation, it would be good to get um, us front and centre uh, in terms of uh, welfare standards and environmental standards. So the consumer is still perceiving that Britain has, um, has a premium. So that's all good. But just one thing I think is really important to, to, to mention that one quarter of all calories in the world cross a national border. The reason why fewer than 3% of the world's population are uh, no longer food insecure uh, is a result of this increased trade, uh, not the increased local self-sufficiency. It's vast, the international trade. And um, of course, we want to keep um, we want to keep that idea, that wonderful idea of, of home local and even growing our own, which has lots of mental benefits as well as you know. Mm. But um, 
it, it is incredibly naive to think that we could in any way um, exist in this vacuum. Of course, I mean, what's going on in the background of all this? Um, and I know that, again, again, giving farming today another bit of a plug, um, they've been discussing this week, uh, that the Brexit negotiations are still going on. We still have a deadline at the, at the end of the year, um, like it or not, uh, for, for, for these to be processed. Um, and, and this will have an impact without, without critically much of the media taking the keen view that, that they might be otherwise. Um, I'm just, uh, just, just interested on your take on that. If it bleeds, it leads. And at the moment, there is an absolute feeding frenzy. People do not want to hear good news stories. Yeah. And if you try to put a good news story, it will just be quashed. It's the most extraordinary narrative coming from the BBC at the moment. And um, I almost think that they will be disappointed when this is all over. This, there's this wonderful quote that um, nothing is more responsible for the good old days than a bad memory. Yeah. And, <laughs> and I just, just, just wonder when this is all over, they'll be going, oh, Got nothing bad to report. Yeah, it is rather handed on a place at the moment. I hope that's given you a, a, something to, <laughs> to think about, Ben. I know we, we said four to five minutes, and I've already run over that. But um, no, it's been going just just before you go, and I'm, I'm yeah. hoping I'm hoping this is going to become a regular thing. But uh, just uh, just just tell us about the the Nuffield Farming Business Groups and, and, and what you do there. Yeah, we've got uh, three groups, about seventy people, and they're uh, all agri entrepreneurs. And I think that the sole reason that they exist is to make me feel inadequate. <laughs> Honestly, they are, they are uh, quite extraordinary human beings and uh, <laughs> I, I hate them all. <laughs> well, thanks, thanks for coming on the show and uh, yeah, I'll ca catch up soon. Anytime, Ben. Anytime. Yeah. Good to see you. Matt Swain there. Big thanks to him for coming on the show. If you have a view on the farming news and you'd like to come on the podcast to tell everyone about it, please contact me on thinkingcountry at gmail.com. Other stories in the news this week included the cancellation of Northern Ireland's largest agricultural event, the Balmoral Show, because of the coronavirus pandemic. The next show will take place from the 12th to the 15th of May 2021 next year. They follow on from the long list of agricultural societies who have also cancelled their events. DEFRA has confirmed that the badger cull will continue later this year, despite calls from some animal welfare groups to cancel the cull because of the coronavirus. Subject to licensing and authorisation by Natural England, the cull will still go ahead from September. It might be quarantine, and you may or may not be spending less time outside than you would normally, but you probably still noticed that we had some rain last week. This has helped things along for arable farmers, but the markets still look difficult this year especially with the expected wheat crop across the EU forecasted at a significant drop on the 2019 harvest. With hospitality and food service businesses closed and a lot of uncertainty still as to what their situation may be like moving forwards, vegetable oils are also struggling. Crushers have large stocks still and this will continue to have a negative impact on the price of oilseed crops. In the beef sector, it seems that Great British Beef Week did little to help things along with another retreat in the average deadweight steer price with processes blaming a rise in demand for mince, which is devaluing cuts of the carcass, which are usually valuable. And that is the news for now. Now it's time for Farmer Focus, and last week I spoke to Exmoor Farmer and Chair of the Exmoor National Park Authority, Robin Milton. 
Apologies again for the crackle on my side of the line. Clearly my internet connection was poor on that day, but hopefully it doesn't make too much difference. It's I'm really pleased now to be joined on the line by Robin Milton, who's a farmer from Exmoor, uh, who also happens to be chair of the Exmoor National Park Authority. Robin's family have farmed on, on Exmoor for about nine generations, I think it is, Robin. Farming sheep and cattle on up to two and a half thousand acres, which is a mix of farmland and moorland um, and they also look after one of the oldest herds of Exmoor ponies in the area. Robin thanks for coming on the show. That's fine it's great to speak to you Ben. Yeah it's really good to see you too it's uh, it's, it's under slightly different circumstances than, the, than we were originally going to be planning. <laughs> <laughs> Challenging is probably the best way although to put it although I have to say that uh, with the lockdown appearing when it did just about with the onset of the lambing and calving season my son suggested, so you won't be able to get away now, Dad. You'll be here to help me all the time. <laughs> <laughs> no more excuses. <laughs> um, let's, let's, let's start with that, actually, with, with the lockdown. Um, and I'm, I'm actually interested in, with your, with your Exmoor National Park Authority hat on, how, it's, how it has affected um, visitors coming to the year. Are people actually sticking to the rules and avoiding the National Park? To be fair, on Exmoor, yes, very definitely. Ex Apart from the very first weekend that the uh, just before they announced the lockdown, when on Exmoor we sort of uni, done done our own sort of unilateral approach and sent put notices out through the media, sort of please stay away. Our age profile of population on Exmoor is at the higher end, yeah. so um, please, unless absolutely necessary, do not travel to come here. People have adhered to that. My two farms are 10 miles apart across the top of the moors here and going in and out over the last few days with, with cattle moving from one end of the farm to the other, it's quite rare you actually see a single vehicle. Mm. I, th I think, I think one, one car and a bicycle yesterday. We've adopted the approach really through the park of just sort of explain, say, you know, please come back. We'd like all the businesses to be here and ready for business but um, without too much of the stress of what's happening in an awful lot of other places yeah of course i mean t tourism must be must be exmoors if not if not one of the biggest the, the biggest earner um, if this does go on for much longer and through the summer how, how might that affect exmoor well it'll have a huge impact i think i think we went through the other day and the tourism income is is sort of 60 percent of the economy nearly 60% or nearly 60% of the local economy here. Um, now, I suppose as part of that is some of the, the winter shooting stuff as well, which is quite significant as well. Yeah. And generally, the majority of the businesses affected will be small businesses or will be farm businesses that have diversified. So the impacts, I think, could be quite long term. For listeners who, who've never been to your oh. part of the world... Uh, what's, what's it like? What, what makes Exmoor unique? Um, well, it's 270 square miles. It's a national park. It's a farmed landscape. The whole landscape is being farmed and shaped by farming one way or another. In the latter years by John Knight, when he bought the, Exmoor, the middle of Exmoor as a royal forest and converted it to his, his farming estate. And so we've got a mix of moorland, farmland, all of it, all of it shaped by farming, the field boundaries, steep valleys, coombs, as we call them, um, 
open moorland and the gra- grazed fields. But tell me about life growing up um, in, in Exmoor. I suppose I suppose it was quite interesting times. There was there was a huge amount of of enthusiasm for developing farming. I grew up in those years where where farm development, productivity, the grant schemes for drainage, better land use, that real focus on food production, self-sufficiency was still there. And it changed, it changed the landscape quite a lot actually. Um, Interestingly enough, although I now chair the National Park Authority, that's something I swore I would never ever be involved in because (laughs) my father was chairman of the North Devon District Council and 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 chaired the planning the planning committee for the National Park Authority for a good many years. So, I said no, I'm never going to get involved in that. But it was, <laughs> it was, it was during those. The, he was he was chair, vice chairman of the Exmoor National Park Authority during the years when this national park brought in its own its own conservation grant scheme and payment regime to stop ploughing up of the moorland to improve it. Wow. So we were actually right at the front of that recognition at the time that, hang on, there's something valuable here and there's a balance. There's a balance between conservation and agriculture and we've got to make sure that we recognise it. Other, other than that, yes, it was a family farm. My father was away an awful lot of the time and uh, so my brother and myself effectively ran the farm for, from, from the moment I returned from university. Okay. Um, I dis- disappeared and for a few years and and enlightened myself a little by heading as far away to an agricultural college as I could. I went to Wythe in Kent (laughs) and uh, now closed unfortunately and and came back and developed the farming business and uh, it probably our farming business changed immeasurably when my brother and I came home and joined my father the farm was 200 acres together with a thousand acres of moorland. We, We worked together we developed built the business when I returned and joined them over I suppose during the 80s in that era of real enthusiasm and or youthful enthusiasm I suppose <laughs> my brother and I sort of bought bought the neighboring five farms took a bought some houses in the village took over my uncle's farm at Withypool and so on wow. and the farm that we that we were running changed from from a 200 acres and a thousand acres of moorland to probably near 1,200 acres of inland and mm-hmm. probably near 4,000 acres or more grazing, huh. common land. So when we split the business up, we split it in half on that basis and that sort of the, the farmhouse and the cottage that was there on it had become sort of 12, 12 houses by the time we split it in half. Uh, um, I, I learned how to borrow money when interest rates were at 17%. Definitely <laughs> did. And it was, that's clearly a sign that you, you were both clearly risk takers. <laughs> yes, but I was younger then. <laughs> it probably probably was the one thing that prompted, well, after my father died, my brother and I sat down one day, he got two sons, I got one son, and said, look, we've worked together very well, but we don't want to store problems up. So we drew a line through the business. So, um, and then told the advisors what we'd done, much to their disgust, <laughs> and said, this is what we're doing. <laughs> you, you can make it happen now. Always, always they said, but haven't you taken it. professional advice? I said, yes, we've agreed between ourselves. <laughs> <laughs> um, and uh, the, year, the year after that, I, I then 
and then my son returned home to join me. So I gave him at the age of 23, the majority share of my business. So, and, so bring, bringing us right up to date, uh, what, yeah. what, what does the business look like today? Today, um, my, my part of the business is, is beef and sheep farm. We're all grass. It's my son has gone for that route of looking at, he said when he took over, I am not going to be reliant, dad, on a basic payment coming in every year. He said that has to be a bonus. And uh, he has made the farm profitable without that, which on a hill farm is quite surprising. So Aberdeen Angus beef cattle, he also rears up to a couple hundred calves a year and sells forward stores. And uh, he promptly sold all my all my mule ewes that I kept and replaced them with clins because he said, I want sheep that can live outdoors, lamb outdoors, yeah. and make the best use of grass. Yeah. This year, excellent. Last year, he actually bought one half-ton bag of, of um, concentrate for our entire lambing flock, um, mm. which then promptly lambed at 172%, I think. Oh, this year, he right. managed to buy absolutely no concentrates for them at all, and we lambed at 184%. And to my surprise, and first time ever, cut our first field of high-protein red clover ryegrass silage off one of his improved lays on the 23rd of April this year. So, yes, the basis is grassland, it's red meat production. Um, I haven't mentioned the Exmoor ponies. They're sort of, they've been there. They've been there ever since I can remember. Yeah. Um, I don't know whether which generation will be the one to actually finally succumb and say, look, they actually cost us money every year. <laughs> Why are we keeping these? Yeah. They graze the moorland. It is a true semi-wild herd of ponies. We've got two, the two, two. We split in two halves. They're split in two halves. Okay. They're probably, probably one of the oldest herds, wild herds. One of the very few properly remaining wild herds. We don't bring them in at all. We round them up once a year. We sort them through and take away the old ones and and do the management bit and win the foals, and we turn them back to the moor on the same day. So they never actually leave the moor. Do you get any any support at all for, for, for that work? Absolutely nothing directly. The only bit that we have managed to work in some value is by using them as grazing units as for conservation grazing on yep. on the moorland. But it's a sort of very much a sort of an aside to what should be. And you think, you know, it's a, it's a rare breed, the Exmoor pony now, a recognised rare breed. And you think it's just a shame that there is another way, no other way of supporting keeping them there. Are you uh, <laughs> are you looking forward to a future outside the common agricultural policy? Um, well, yes. My own thought has always been, and right from the beginning of of the debate around Brexit or not, that there has to be change. Now, for anything to develop, there has to be the opportunity for change. And there was a distinct feeling to my mind that good or bad, and there was an awful lot of good within the CAP, that it, be, it had become this political institution that was very resistant to any form of change. And my, the comments I was getting from young farmers all over the country was, it's stifling us. We're not seeing ways into this because what, this, what the CAP effectively was doing was supporting the established substantial farmers to keep doing what they were doing. And uh, so I think 
let's look for the positives. There's going to be some huge challenges in the future. There might have been several of them there anyway. But generally speaking, the entrepreneurial spirit of British farmers is probably at its best when faced with a challenge and an opportunity because change always brings opportunity. And for those that recognise it, there will be a huge amount of them. I think I'm right in thinking, was there a, there, there was a, a group in Exmoor who, who came up with a vision for Exmoor Postcap? Yes, we, we put to one of those groups at the time because I was heavily involved with the NFU. Um, I chaired their, their Uplands Farming Forum for eight years and was still there at the time. Um, and then a group, we set up a group on Exmoor called the Exmoor Hill Farming Network, which was in a Prince's Countryside Fund and supported national park gave them a bit of money entirely independent group that is is now set itself up as a cic helping and supporting exmoor farmers but as a completely independent group they came together with a vision for what they would like to see post cap um, they published that as a published document um, michael gove at the time visited um, i know there was a there were copies on most desks throughout DEFRA and an awful lot of Whitehall because I dropped them there and uh, made sure they'd arrived. But to much to my surprise, it was a lo lot of young farmers coming up with really proactive thoughts for the future. I had 80 young farmers in a room or, or farmers in a room at Exford to sign off the document. And I said, I will, let's, let's, let's have a hands up vote and see who supports this approach where, where management of the landscape and conservation becomes a core part of your business necessary to recognize that a lot of that management is through farming is this the approach you're happy to go down and i had a completely unanimous support for it mm -hmm. which somewhat negated some of that very negative criticism from some of the conservation organizations that say farmers aren't willing to engage at 80 x more farmers in a room saying come on you give us a chance and we'll show you what we can do why and how did you first get involved in the national park authority well i had a bit of an accident oh, okay. and ended up with a leg in plaster for a considerable length of time i think i was probably effectively not really working for I wasn't working properly for a year, probably a couple of years. And I was still, still not 100%. I was advised I'd at that point to give up farming in about 2008, was it? Something like that. I got very bored after the first couple of months of not being able to move, do anything, go anywhere. Um, and, uh, and sent application in for a Secretary of State appointment to the National Park Authority. And much to my surprise, <laughs> I got appointed. Um, shortly afterwards, I then got got asked if I would join the NFU's Uplands Forum. Okay, so that, um, that, that came around about the same time? About the same time, and to my great surprise, the, the, the person who had chaired it for a considerable time there as their Uplands spokesman and forum chair was a gentleman called Will Cockbane, a, um, a Cumbrian farmer, really well-known really well Cumbrian farmer, Will is, huge respect for him. Just around, just after that, the appointment process for Natural England came up and I sort of said to Will you would be great to have a farmer of your calibre sat on the Natural England board and uh, I think I got a call from him at sort of the 11th hour to say I've taken hush I listened to your comments Robin I'm not sure whether it's right or wrong but I've just pressed the send button <laughs> <laughs> for my application but 
a month or so later, he rang me and he said, I thought I'd better tell you. He said, I've been accepted for a board membership. He said, <laughs> so I'm going to step down as chair of the national, as national NFU spokesman and Upland Forum chair. So I said, that'd be great. I said, so who do you have in mind? He said, well, you're going to do it. <laughs> so doesn't there have to be an election process? He said, well, yes, but you're going to do it. <laughs> and that's how I ended up chairing the NFU for eight years. The NFU right. Upland okay. for eight years and acting as their Upland farming spokesman. <laughs> Climate is, of course, a massive issue for the Uplands. Um, mm. and, and the Exmoor National Park Authority, I think, has, has agreed to move towards being carbon neutral by 2030. Is it? Um, how do, how, how do you think the, the Exmoor landscape might change? I mean, it's not getting a massive, a massive question. What kind of changes do you expect to see in the Exmoor landscape? Well, this, is, this has provided our, our, us, Ben, with some massive challenges, quite honestly. I mean, the previous management plan 10 years ago for the National Park Authority had an ambition in it to be carbon neutral. Um, there's obviously some limitations on Exmoor because transport links are pretty poor. Um, interestingly, antagonistic bits within it are government and maybe Glover, the Glover review approach of saying you need to get more people into the parks and get them to visit. Well, yeah. quite honestly, there's only one way to get here uh, and that's going to be a very, very carbon intensive route yeah. um, because nobody, nobody's going to start from London and cycle for a holiday on Exmoor. Okay. Uh, there was a recognition that there was a necessity to recognize what was happening to our environment. We've done a tremendous amount over the past within the headwaters of the X project, looking at Southwest water, at clean water supply and everything. We actually have put together an ecosystem services payment on Exmoor that we okay. signed with Southwest water some, what, six years ago, seven years ago, way more than that, probably near 10, I expect way before anyone else had really got into those negotiations as to what the value really of clean water was. Interestingly, it looks like some of the figures that we were being offered then are pretty pitiful compared to what may be possible in the future. But then that's part of that development and negotiation process. I think within the farming scenario, the, the headwaters of the X project that we were involved in, among others, actually provided a free walk-on advice to farmers around pollution, soil management, and so on. And a really core to probably the, the Exmoor Ambition project stuff was that idea that principal asset is our natural resources. We've got the soil, we've got the moorlands, we've got the peat. And there's also that sort of um, rather, rather virtual sort of value. What do you put on landscape? and views and clean air so i think we've got some challenges there i did suggest to the national park authority that when they had their net zero ambition that they could only really apply that to the activities of the authority mm -hmm. they cannot apply that to the activity i think the farming activities and so on we can influence we can talk about we can help to quantify but that's actually not ours to do as the NFU have put together their net zero for farming. So, so let's pull together the two. The other thing has been some quite low, close links we've got with Exeter University and the likes of Professor Michael Winter and so on, which has been really useful because <clears throat> they've, there's been a highlighting of values there that 
maybe the carbon accounting systems that we initially started with are not actually applicable to some of what we have. They don't recognize some of the true costs of what's going on and where, where we can use it. And if we can develop a carbon accounting system that recognizes probably the local values and the activities of the people and the farmers that live here. Yep. And actually they should be the ones benefiting from the activities, not an establishment somewhere. Do you think mm. as, a, as, a, as a nation we value our uplands enough? No, I don't. I don't at all. I, th I, I think for several years it's been regarded as, as something that's on the verge of, on the, on the edge of farming um, and has been regarded by those, the, the designate, by designating landscapes there, it's been regarded as the opportunity to use that as the sort of the, the, the playground and so on. I think national parks have to grasp the initiative as well as the farmers here and say, actually, there's more to it than just getting people to come and visit, taking money off of them for parking and buying an ice cream and so on. They're coming to look at something that is here because of the activities that we have. Let's attempt to make people value a little bit more further than just coming, having a look, buying their ice cream and going away again. And uh, maybe the challenge is for some of the National Park thinking, as, as I think Julian Glover put out. Although, although I think some of his recommendations might necessarily have been somewhat altered by the kind of challenges we face now mm -hmm. at the current time. You know the breed, the breeds of sheep, the culture. I can, I can think of farms here on Exmoor. You know that have that have been there for, well, like ourselves, hundreds of years. I think I recently done an article for the Exmoor News, which comes out now this month. Yep. And uh, when I was given a hand to start tracing my family tree back and found that we'd actually been resident here on the southern edge of Exmoor, we could head back for sort of 500 years which was wow. more than I thought which seems to be a heck of a long time to me <laughs> history and there's an awful lot of families on Exmoor with that kind of history they've been there a long time and they really do value what's there and I think they get re really struggle sometimes with all that negative publicity that farmers are wrecking it actually farmers do a tremendous amount of stuff for which they're not paid in any shape or form at all yeah, yeah because they actually love the place they live. I think that's a good note to end it on. But Robin, thanks so much for coming on the show. It's been brilliant talking to you and uh, yeah, wish you and the family all, all the absolute best for this strange year ahead. Thank you, Ben, very much. And great to speak to you. We'll look really forward to, to seeing you. how you get on with editing. Robin Milton there, and if you want to hear the full version of that interview, including items on rural housing and rewilding, you can find that on YouTube. Just search for Meet the Farmers podcast. Now, before we end the show, it's time to guess the crop. Thank you to those of you who are playing along. You can send me your answers through direct message on Twitter or Instagram at mtf underscore podcast or email me on thinkingcountry at gmail.com. Now, let's see what this week's mystery crop is. So all you need to do is let me know what you think this week's crop is and the person with the most correct crops at the end of the year wins a special mystery prize which will be posted to you. Your clues for this week's crop are Number one, it's an important crop in Asia and Africa, especially India, Mali, Nigeria and Niger. Two, it's a small grained annual warm weather cereal belonging to the grass family. 
And number three, it's the base ingredient for the distilled liquor, Rakshi. That's R-A-K-S-H-I. I hope I'm saying it okay. So what is this week's crop? Time to guess the crop. Just tell me what the type of crop is. That really is all we have time for. So I want to thank my guests today, Robin Milton and Matt Swain. And thank you for listening. Don't forget you can follow us on Twitter or Instagram at MTF underscore podcast or find full length interviews on YouTube by searching for Meet the Farmers podcast. Please subscribe to the show wherever you're listening. And if you're feeling really generous, take a screenshot and post it on your social media or just tell someone about the show. This has been Meet the Farmers. I'm Ben Eagle. Thank you for listening and I'll see you next week.